Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Phaedo, Part 2 Then I must try to make a more successful defense before you than I did when before the judges. For I am quite ready to admit, Simeus and Cebes, that I ought to be grieved at death if I were not persuaded in the first place that I am going to other gods who are wise and good, of which I am as certain as I can be of any such matters. And secondly, though I am not so sure of this last, to men departed, better than those whom I leave behind. And therefore I do not grieve as I might have done, for I have good hope that there is yet something remaining for the dead. And as has been said of old, some far better thing for the good than for the evil. But do you mean to take away your thoughts with you, Socrates? said Simeus. Will you not impart them to us? For they are a benefit in which we too are entitled to share. Moreover, if you succeed in convincing us, that will be an answer to the charge against yourself. I will do my best, replied Socrates, but you must first let me hear what Crito wants. He has long been wishing to say something to me. Only this, Socrates, replied Crito, the attendant who is to give you the poison has been telling me, and he wants me to tell you, that you are not to talk much. Talking, he says, increases heat, and this is apt to interfere with the action of the poison. Persons who excite themselves are sometimes obliged to take a second, or even a third dose. Then, said Socrates, let him mind his business, and be prepared to give the poison twice or even thrice, if necessary. That is all. I knew quite well what you would say, replied Crito, but I was obliged to satisfy him. Never mind him, he said. And now, O oh my judges, I desire to prove to you that the real philosopher has reason to be of good cheer when he is about to die, and that after death he may hope to obtain the greatest good in the other world. And how this may be, Simeus and Cebes, I will endeavor to explain for I deem that the true votary of philosophy is likely to be misunderstood by other men. They do not perceive that he is always pursuing death and dying, and if this be so, and he has had the desire of death all his life long, why, when his time comes, should he repine at that which he has been always pursuing and desiring? Simeus said laughingly, Though not in a laughing humor, you have made me laugh, Socrates. For I cannot help thinking that many, when they hear your words, will say how truly you have described philosophers. And our people at home will likewise say that the life which philosophers desire is, in reality, death, and that they have found them out to be deserving of the death which they desire. And they are right, Simeus, in thinking so. With the exception of the words, they have found them out. For they have not found out either what is the nature of that death which the true philosopher deserves, or how he deserves or desires death. But enough of them. Let us discuss the matter among ourselves. Do we believe that there is such a thing as death? To be sure, replied Simeus. Is it not the separation of soul and body? And to be dead is the completion of this. When the soul exists in herself, and is released from the body, and the body is released from the soul, what is this but death? Just so, he replied. There is another question, 
which will probably throw light on our present inquiry, if you and I can agree about it. Ought the philosopher to care about the pleasures, if they are to be called pleasures, of eating and drinking? Certainly not, answered Simeus. And what about the pleasures of love? Should he care for them? By no means. And will he think much of the other ways of indulging the body? For example, the acquisition of costly raiment, or sandals, or other adornments of the body. Instead of caring about them, does he not rather despise anything more than nature needs? What do you say? I should say that the true philosopher would despise them. Would you not say that he is entirely concerned with the soul and not with the body? He would like, as far as he can, to get away from the body and to turn to the soul. Quite true. In matters of this sort, philosophers, above all other men, may be observed in every sort of way to dissever the soul from the communion of the body. Very true. Whereas, Simeus, the rest of the world are of opinion that to him who has no sense of pleasure and no part in bodily pleasure, life is not worth having, and that he who is indifferent about them is as good as dead. That is also true. What again shall we say of the actual acquirement of knowledge? Is the body, if invited to share in the enquiry, a hinderer or a helper? I mean to say, have sight and hearing any truth in them? Are they not, as the poets are always telling us, inaccurate witnesses? And yet, if even they are inaccurate and indistinct, what is to be said of the other senses? For you will allow that they are the best of them? Certainly, he replied. Then when does the soul attain truth? For in attempting to consider anything in company with the body, she is obviously deceived. True. Then must not true existence be revealed to her in thought, if at all? Yes. And thought is best when the mind is gathered into herself, and none of these things trouble her, neither sounds, nor sights, nor pain, nor any pleasure, when she takes leave of the body, and has as little as possible to do with it, when she has no bodily sense or desire, but is aspiring after true being? Certainly. And in this the philosopher dishonors the body. His soul runs away from his body and desires to be alone and by herself. That is true. Well, but there is another thing, Simeus. Is there or is there not an absolute justice? Assuredly there is. And an absolute beauty? An absolute good? Of course. But did you ever behold any of them with your eyes? Certainly not. Or did you ever reach them with any other bodily sense? And I speak not of these alone, but of absolute greatness, and health, and strength, and of the essence or true nature of everything. Has the reality of them ever been perceived by you through the bodily organs? Or rather, is not the nearest approach to the knowledge of their several natures made by him who so orders his intellectual vision as to have the most exact conception of the essence of each thing which he considers. Certainly. And he attains to the purest knowledge of them who goes to each with the mind alone, not introducing or intruding in the act of thought, sight, or any other sense together with reason, 
but with the very light of the mind in her own clearness, searches into the very truth of each. He who has got rid, as far as he can, of eyes and ears and, so to speak, of the whole body, these being in his opinion distracting elements, which when they infect the soul hinder her from acquiring truth and knowledge. Who, if not he, is likely to attain the knowledge of true being? What you say has a wonderful truth in it, Socrates, replied Simeus. And when real philosophers consider all these things, will they not be led to make a reflection which they will express in words something like the following? Have we not found, they will say, a path of thought which seems to bring us and our argument to the conclusion that while we are in the body, and while the soul is infected with the evils of the body, our desire will not be satisfied, and our desire is of the truth, for the body is a source of endless trouble to us by reason of the mere requirement of food, and is liable also to diseases which overtake and impede us in the search after true being. It fills us full of loves and lusts and fears and fancies of all kinds and endless foolery, and, in fact, as men say, takes away from us the power of thinking at all. Whence come wars and fightings and factions? Whence but from the body and the lusts of the body? Wars are occasioned by the love of money, and money has to be acquired for the sake and in the service of the body. And by reason of all these impediments, we have no time to give to philosophy. And last and worst of all, even if we are at leisure and betake ourselves to some speculation, the body is always breaking in upon us, causing turmoil and confusion in our inquiries, and so amazing us that we are prevented from seeing the truth. It has been proved to us by experience that if we would have pure knowledge of anything, we must be quit of the body. The soul in herself must behold things in themselves, and then we shall attain the wisdom which we desire, and of which we say that we are lovers, not while we live, but after death. For if while in company with the body the soul cannot have pure knowledge, one of two things follows. Either knowledge is not to be attained at all, or, if at all, after death. For then, and not till then, the soul will be parted from the body and exist in herself alone. In this present life, I reckon that we make the nearest approach to knowledge when we have the least possible intercourse or communion with the body, and not surfeited with the bodily nature, but keep ourselves pure until the hour when God himself is pleased to release us. And thus, having got rid of the foolishness of the body, we shall be pure and hold converse with the pure, and know of ourselves the clear light everywhere, which is no other than the light of truth. For the impure are not permitted to approach the pure. These are the sort of words, Simeus, which the true lovers of knowledge cannot help saying to one another and thinking. You would agree, would you not? Undoubtedly, Socrates. But, O oh my friend, if this is true, there is great reason to hope that going whither I go, when I have come to the end of my journey, I shall attain that which has been the pursuit of my life.
and therefore I go on my way rejoicing. And not I only, but every other man who believes that his mind has been made ready, and that he is in a manner purified. Certainly, replied Simeus. And what is purification but the separation of the soul from the body, as I was saying before? The habit of the soul gathering and collecting herself into herself from all sides out of the body, the dwelling in her own place alone, as in another life, so also in this, as far as she can. The release of the soul from the chains of the body. Very true, he said. And this separation and release of the soul from the body is termed death? To be sure, he said, and the true philosophers, and they only, are ever seeking to release the soul. Is not the separation and release of the soul from the body their especial study? That is true. And as I was saying at first, there would be a ridiculous contradiction in men studying to live as nearly as they can in a state of death and yet repining when it comes upon them, clearly. And the true philosophers, Simeus, are always occupied in the practice of dying. Wherefore also to them, least of all men, is death terrible. Look at the matter thus. If they have been in every way the enemies of the body, and are wanting to be alone with the soul, when this desire of theirs is granted, how inconsistent would they be if they trembled and repined, instead of rejoicing at their departure to that place where, when they arrive, they hope to gain that which in life they desired, and this was wisdom, and at the same time to be rid of the company of their enemy. Many a man has been willing to go to the world below, animated by the hope of seeing there an earthly love, or wife, or son, and conversing with them. And will he who is a true lover of wisdom, and is strongly persuaded in like manner that only in the world below he can worthily enjoy her, still repine at death? Will he not depart with joy? Surely he will, O oh my friend, if he be a true philosopher, for he will have a firm conviction that there and there only he can find wisdom in her purity. And if this be true, he would be very absurd, as I was saying, if he were afraid of death. He would indeed, replied Simeus. And when you see a man who is repining at the approach of death, is not his reluctance a sufficient proof that he is not a lover of wisdom, but a lover of the body, and probably at the same time a lover of either money or power or both? Quite so, he replied. And is not courage, Simeus, a quality which is specially characteristic of the philosopher? Certainly. There is temperance again, which even by the vulgar is supposed to consist in the control and regulation of the passions, and in the sense of superiority to them. Is not temperance a virtue belonging to those only who despise the body, and who pass their lives in philosophy? Most assuredly, for the courage and temperance of other men, if you will consider them, are really a contradiction. How so? Well, he said, you are aware that death is regarded by men in general as a great evil. Very true, he said. And do not courageous men face death because they are afraid of yet greater evils? That is quite true. Then all but the philosophers are courageous only from fear, and because they are afraid. And yet that a man should be courageous from fear, 
and because he is a coward, is surely a strange thing. Very true. And are not the temperate exactly in the same case? They are temperate because they are intemperate, which might seem to be a contradiction, but is nevertheless the sort of thing which happens with this foolish temperance. For there are pleasures which they are afraid of losing, and in their desire to keep them, they abstain from some pleasures, because they are overcome by others. And although to be conquered by pleasure is called by men intemperance, to them the conquest of pleasure consists in being conquered by pleasure. And that is what I mean by saying that, in a sense, they are made temperate through intemperance. Such appears to be the case. Yet the exchange of one fear or pleasure or pain for another fear or pleasure or pain, and of the greater for the less, as if they were coins, is not the exchange of virtue. O oh, my blessed Simeus! Is there not one true coin for which all things ought to be exchanged? And that is wisdom. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.